0: Section 2 of Bethlehem by Frederick William Faber. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Bosom of the Eternal Father, Part 2 Such was the creatureless life which the Eternal Word lived in the bosom of the Father. Creatureless, yet not creatureless. The Babe of Bethlehem was that eternal person, and in some sense he was eternally the Babe of Bethlehem. From the first his predestined humanity entered into that divine life, or lay visibly upon its surface. In the fountain of the Godhead, as in a most pellucid mirror, there was an eternal view of creatures, creatures which should one day be, creatures perhaps of endlessly successive creations, and creatures which were possible to infinite power and inexhaustible wisdom, which yet should never actually be. The knowledge of creatures, and especially the knowledge of his own sacred humanity, was part of that knowledge by which the word was eternally produced. With this eternal view of creatures, it seems a mystery that the actual creation was so long delayed, and yet eternity is not time, and there was no delay but creation is not eternal and thus had the creation of the angels and of matter and thus had the creation of the angels and of matter taken place millions of ages earlier than it did in our manner of speaking it would truly have been no earlier or had it been only last year it would truly have been no later in both cases there would simply have been an immeasurable and unsuccessive eternity before it Some speak as if God humbled himself out of the sublimity of his divine life in order to create. Yet this can be but a figure of speech. There can be no humility in God. God could only touch lowliness through the assumption of a created nature. Rightly considered, it is more honorable even to the divine self-sufficing life of God to say, what is the truth, that creation was worthy of him, both the act of creation and the actual creation. In God what is free is lower than what is necessary, and creation was a free act outside himself, not a necessary act inside himself, like the generation of the sun or the procession of the spirit. He was not by his own nature bound to create, nor when he created was he bound to do so after one fashion rather than another, or with one degree of perfection rather than another. Thus the glorious tracts of world-peopled space and all the sun-illumined beauty of the little world which we inhabit are nothing more than marvellous monuments of the liberty of God visibly outspread before our eyes. It is part of our own exaltation in being creatures that we are in ourselves such a mass of evidences of the wonderful and attractive things which there are in God. What then was the first aspect of creation in the divine mind, if we may use the word first, of that which is eternal, There may at least be a priority of order, even though there be no priority of time. There is precedence in decrees, even where there is not succession. The first aspect of creation, as it lay in the mind of God, was a created nature assumed to his own uncreated nature in a divine person. In other words, the first sight in creation was the babe of Bethlehem. The first step outside of God, the first standing point in creation, is the created nature assumed to a divine person. Through this, as it were, lay the passage from the creator to creatures. This was the point of union, the junction between the finite and the infinite, the creature blending unconfusedly with the creator. This firstborn creature, this sacred humanity, was not only the primal creature, but it was also the cause of all other creatures whatsoever. It was the central creature as well as the first. All others group themselves around it and are in relations with it, and draw their significance from it, and moreover are modelled upon it. Its predestination is the fountain of all other predestinations. The whole meaning of creation, equally with the destinies of each individual creature, is bound up with this created nature assumed to a divine person. It is the head of creations, angelic, human, or whatsoever other creation there may ever be. Its position is universal, for it couples all creations unto God. But by which of the three divine persons was this created nature to be assumed? By the second person, the Word, who had been living everlastingly in the bosom of the Father, the life we have been attempting to describe. There were doubtless many reasons why it should be the second rather than the first or third persons, which are beyond our comprehension or suspicion. We probably get but a glance at any divine work, and there is radiance enough to blind us in the single glance. Yet even so it is no measure of the resplendent light of uncreated wisdom which is in the least of the doings of the Most High." There are nevertheless certain conveniences, as theologians have named them, certain congruities and fitnesses in the assumption of a created nature by the Son rather than by the Father or the Holy Ghost, which we may reverently consider and which disclose to us somewhat more of the adorable life of God. There is a special connection between the word and creatures independent of the fact of his having assumed a created nature and which seems to be part of the reason why he, not the other two persons, should have been the one to assume it. As the word, he is the utterance of the Father, the expression of him, the image of him. Creation is, in a finite and created way, what he is infinitely and uncreatedly. Creation is a divine word, an utterance, an expression, an image of God, faint, feeble, far off, external, mutable, free. While the word is the image of God within God, consubstantial, eternal, immutable and necessary we venture to think it most probable that all creatures have some distinct relations to the different persons of the Holy Trinity, and that the Trinity of God, as well as his unity, is impressed on his creation. Nevertheless, quite apart from this idea, there is a special connection between the Son and creatures, as between the inward and the outward word of God, so that his assumption of a created nature was the congruous way in which creation expressed itself. It was the inward word becoming outward. It was the eternal generation followed by the temporal generation. If we might dare to use such an expression, the assumption of a created nature by the word was the way in which the creatureless God vouchsafed to get at creation. He was, as it were, necessitated to speak one word, and that word, because necessary, could not be otherwise than co-eternal and consubstantial with himself. In his love he freely spoke a second word, which was creation, and that word, because free, was finite and temporary. It was by his first word that he spoke his second word, for creation is more than an echo of the eternal generation of the sun, in the reality of that created nature which the sun has stooped to wear." Thus there is a congruity in the Son's assumption of a created nature, which there would not have been, at least in our indistinct vision of divine things, in a similar assumption by the Father or the Holy Ghost. But there is a second congruity, which may be evolved out of the first. He is not the word only, he is the Son also. In his relation of Son, we discern another fitness for his assumption of a created nature, He is the Son of God by nature, and rational creatures were to be the sons of God by adoption, through their justification. It was the end of their creation that they were to be admitted to share in his filiation. The communication of his sonship was to be their way into glory. As God appeared as if he entered into creation through the person of the Son, so through the same person does creation find its way to rest in God. Hence it was fitting that the second person should be the one to assume a created nature, in order that he might not only be the Son of God in his divine nature, but also the Son of God in his created nature. This second sonship he obtained through his created nature, through which also he comes to be the head of all God's adopted sons, the sonship of his created nature being the model and the cause and the means of their adoption, though its own sonship is natural and not adopted. This is a congruity founded upon his being the Son as well as the Word. If we are right in thus imagining that we discern these two fitnesses in the person of the Son for the assumption of a created nature, when, which neither man nor angel could have dreamed it was to be that a divine person should assume a created nature, we may also venture to behold what looks like an incongruity in such an assumption taking place by the Father or the Holy Ghost by virtue of the assumed nature, the divine person assuming it, must become the son of God. God's movement towards creation is a movement of paternity. Creation corresponds to that movement of God by a filial worship and obedience. If a creator, who is not also the father of his creatures, is conceivable, the dispensation it would betoken would be so entirely different from that under which the actual creation finds itself, that the hypothesis would displace all our ideas, and we could hardly arrange matters in an imaginary world of this sort without doing some dishonor to those perfections of God which the bare act of creation would imply. We take for granted, therefore, speaking of what we know and see, and according to the analogy of present things, that in virtue of his assumed nature, the person assuming would become, in the most sublime manner, the actual son of God, by nature rather than by adoption. Now there would be a manifest incongruity, to our weak eyes at least, in the father becoming also the son, even by means of a created nature. A temporal generation does not seem suitable to that divine person whose distinct perfection is his in There would appear a sort of violence in the unbegotten Father being also the Babe of Bethlehem. So also, in the case of the Holy Ghost, the assumption of a created nature and a temporal generation would not be in harmony with the method of his proceeding from the Father and the Son, which is not a generation, but a procession of another sort. It has not the similitude of a sonship, even though the person proceeding is consubstantial with those from whom, as from one principle, he eternally proceeds. He is fruitful within the Godhead, for he is the breath, the fire, the love, the jubilee of the divine life. He is fruitful outside, for he is the giver of gifts and the gift given, the unction and outpouring of the Holy Trinity upon creation. Marvellous both within and without the Godhead is his adorable fecundity but it is of a different sort from that of the Father and the Son. He produces no fourth person in the Godhead. Now, as there is something incongruous in the first person, as the unbegotten fountain of Godhead, from whom all paternity in heaven and earth is named, assuming a created nature and becoming the adopted Son of God, so also is there something unsuitable in the same assumption by the third person, who is unproducing and who returns back upon the Father and the Son, the adorable limit of the Godhead. It seems as if it would not be at the limit, but in the centre that God would open on creation. At least all this is what seems to us, now that we know things as they actually are. May God forgive us if we have thought too boldly. It is such a delight to speak of him that we are sometimes beguiled onwards, we hardly know how. All this has no concern with the prevision of sin and the fall of man, Indeed, it would be naturally consistent with the assumption of an angelic nature by the person assuming. For we have spoken hitherto of the assumption of a created nature by one of the three divine persons in connection with the mystery of creation generally. The created nature, which he chose, remains for future consideration. But if, for the moment, we take for granted his choice of a human nature, and add to it the furthest consideration of the fall, We come in sight of a fresh congruity in the assumption of the created nature by the second person rather than the first or third. Adam fell in the lawless search after science. His sin was a traitorous attempt to force the divine wisdom to give up the secrets which it chose to conceal. He endeavored to force his way through the beautiful marvels of God's own creation into the counsels of God. He made a disloyal use of his science to increase that science in spite of God. He leagued with the mighty fallen intelligence of God's enemy in order to learn what God had forbidden him to know. Now the word is the substantial wisdom of the father. It is by the father's knowledge of himself that the word is produced. So, when in the prevision of sin the incarnation took its remedial form, it was most suitable that he, who is the substantial wisdom of the father, should be the person to assume that nature which now needed redeeming because it had fallen, and fallen in the unlawful and disobedient pursuit of divine knowledge. But although it was the person of the Son and not the person of the Father or the Holy Spirit which assumed a created nature, we must bear in mind that that assumption was the work of the whole trinity. It was not more the work of the person assuming than it was of the two persons not assuming. Every work which God does outside himself is the work of all the three persons equally, even when there is something special in the mission and operation of the different persons. This is hard to understand, but to believe it is an undoubted necessity of the Catholic faith. It is equally of faith with the doctrine that it was the Son and not the Father or the Holy Ghost who assumed a created nature. It seems hard to say that the Incarnation is not more the work of the second person than it is of the first or the third, yet we must cling most jealously to this faith, or we shall throw all divine truth into hopeless confusion. The Holy Trinity acts as one God, even when creatures may come into special relations with one of the divine persons. The doctrine of mission is not at variance with the unity and co-equality in the Godhead, Neither must we listen to some of the older theologians who held that the Father and the Holy Ghost are in the sacred humanity of the Word merely by essence, presence and power, as they are in all creatures. On the contrary, the other divine persons are very specially in the sacred humanity by a most intimate connection and concomitance, though not by the intrinsic force of the Incarnation, just as the soul and divinity of our Lord are in the blessed sacrament by concomitance, and not by the force of the words of consecration. The very fact that the divine essence dwells in a peculiar way in the sacred humanity involves a peculiar indwelling of the Father and the Holy Ghost, because the divine essence is one. Nevertheless, we may have special feelings, not feelings of comparison or of preference or of distinction, yet special feelings towards the one person who was actually incarnate and we may base our devotions on such feelings without any fear of deflecting from the analogy of the faith. Piety must of necessity have its special feelings towards each of the three divine persons, which feelings flow from their personal distinctions, and in the same way their missions to creatures, and the absence of all mission in the Father, are the ground for similar and still more special feelings. Still more shall we feel this when we remember what has been already said, that the second person was incarnate precisely because he was the second person. This is a difficult doctrine. It would even be dry if doctrine could be dry. But we must bear with a few difficulties at first. They will make what follows easier, and they will illuminate many beauties which, except by their light, we should either never see, or see only as a confused and dazzling indistinctness. Thus the predestined, created nature of the Word lay everlastingly in the vast bosom of the Father. It was a human nature, eternally chosen with a distinct and significant predilection. It was the first creature. It is He who in His assumed nature we call Jesus. All angels, men, animals and matter were made because of Him and for Him simply. He is the sole reason of the existence of every created thing, the sole interpretation of them all, the sole rule and measure of every external work of God. It is in the light of this predestination of Jesus that we must regard all life, all science, all history, all the grandeurs of angels, all the destinies of men, all the beautiful geography of this variegated planet garden, all the problematical possibilities of world-crowded space. Our own little tiny life, our own petty orbit, like the walk of an insect on a leaf, lies in the soft radiance of the predestination of Jesus, as in a beautifying sunset, and has a sweet meaning there, and is well nigh infinitely dear to God, who clothes it with an importance to himself which is the hardest of all mysteries to understand, because it is the most incredible of loves. Last of all, there was a time at which this eternal counsel of God was to take effect, and to become, as we creatures speak, actual outside his own divine mind. Why the babe of Bethlehem was to come, and came, when he did, and not before, why so early, and why so late, it is beyond our power to say. Many reverent and lawful guesses have been made, but we pass them all over as plainly below the majesty of the occasion, and the sublimity of the decree which they profess to explain." but God's love of his creatures so often condescends to wear the look of impatience, that we are not surprised when theologians tell us, after our own human way of speaking, that the word impatiently anticipated his time through the attraction of the purity of Mary. Oh, how like God always, patient for so long, and then seemingly so impatient and sudden at the last! But is it not always so with grace? There is a kind of suddenness in its most deliberate operations, which recommends itself only to a spiritual discernment. It is thus conversions come, it is thus vocations ripen. God is always taking us unawares when he means love, while justice, on the other hand, gives long notice and makes noisy preparations as if it magnified itself by its inseparable accompaniments of mercy. The occupation of God has been from all eternity what it is now and will ever be his own blessed self. He is bounded, as it were, by that blissful infinity. His life turns upon it. His magnificence consists in it. His necessary actions rise within it and perpetuate themselves there for evermore. He dwells in himself and is his own eternity. But when we think of him as from all eternity our creator, in design even when not in fact, it comes to us almost unconsciously to picture him to ourselves as greatly occupied in choosing. From this point of view, choice seems almost his principal occupation. He is electing, distinguishing, preferring. Even when in our own thoughts we give the amplest room to his foresight, we cannot obliterate the view of his choosing, electing and preferring. We cannot even bring ourselves to think that he was bound to create the best kind of world or to do the best with it when created. We cannot bring the shadow of necessity near God when we look at Him at work outside Himself. His blissful necessities lie within the Most Holy Trinity. Outside of Himself all is uncontrollable freedom, the freedom of a boundless wisdom which is also boundless power, of an infinite justice which is indistinguishable from infinite love. In like manner, when we meditate on the life of the Word, who was to assume a created nature, we conceive of Him as making choice of many things as He lay in the bosom of the Father. He lived a life of elections, and every one of his elections most nearly and affectionately concerns ourselves, while it is also based on nothing less than his own infinite perfections, and all these elections are eternal. His first choice was of his nature. Countless possible rational natures lay before him in the clear landscape of his wisdom. They must all have had attractions and congruities, inasmuch as they were the ideas of his own divine mind. He had to choose amongst them, and to found his choice on reasons of infinite beauty and unerring wisdom. We dare not attribute a causeless predilection to God, though his predilections may be unaccountable to us. Especially he had to compare, only that comparison implies too much of a process for infinite wisdom, the natures of angels and of men, and perhaps other existing rational natures also. How much depended upon this choice? The whole history of creation will simply flow out of it. The reasons seem on the side of his assuming an angelic nature. It is higher and therefore nearer to him. It is much more magnificent and therefore more suitable to him. It is purely spiritual and we may conceive a divine person to abhor the contact of matter. The church expressly thanks him for not abhorring the virginal bosom of his sinless mother. If we look at his compassion, we shall remember that the angels had fallen no less than man, and that the human race could be stopped with Adam and Eve, whereas one-third of the multitudinous angels had already fallen, or were actually falling into the abyss in the sure provision of the Most High. The angels also love him better than men. They seem to love him more in fact, as well as to have greater powers of loving him. Yet it is he who in the flesh seemed to love John more than Peter, though Peter loved him more than John. He chose human nature for his assumption, rather than angelical, and he chose it with the unerring choice of God. A thousand sciences lay deep within that choice, and it is only the knowledge of the character of God which that choice has given us that enables us to conjecture any ground for that choice, while in our estimation all the reasons would else have seemed against it. There was an extremity of condescension in his choice of a human nature which better satisfies the divine perfections. By the lowness of his descent he gained more of what he could not have as God, and it appears as if no additional degree of humiliation was of little consequence in his sight. He got deeper down into his own creation by this choice, and came nearer to the edge of that nothingness which is, as it were, the antipodes of God, If we could conceive of a moment in which that choice was not yet made, but in which it was at the very point of being made, how should we not feel our own destinies trembling in the balance? All that makes this life endurable to us, all that mellows the past or gilds the future, the whole vista of the endless life before us, all this and much more about us that we know not of, was involved in that eternal choice of the nature to be assumed by the person of the eternal word. That choice is the rudder which is still at this moment steering both our time and our eternity. Happy are we, beyond all angels, to be of the family whose nature was chosen for himself by the eternal word. This is one of those happinesses which make real unhappiness so impossible. When we enumerate all these choices of the word in the father's bosom, we do not forget that, as they were eternal, they were also unsuccessive. But as we must name them in some order, we arrange them as they would come according to our notion of things. His nature chosen, and that nature human, his next choice would be of his blessed soul. Perhaps no two souls of men are alike. The products of grace in each soul are as various as the productions of the different soils of earth. The variety of the saints is one of the most glorious varieties on earth. Thus countless beautiful souls, radiant in their vast capabilities of supernatural holiness, exulting in the range and completeness of their natural powers, arrayed in spiritual beauty of the most enticing purity, hung before his eye, like shining orbs, in the dark abyss of nothingness. Of all possible souls he had his choice, and he had to choose one which could bear to dwell in the furnace of the hypostatic union could light up all heaven in lieu of sun and moon by its created sanctity, and could hold an ocean of grace which was only not absolutely illimitable. With what joy must not such a choice have been accompanied? With what unspeakable complacency must he not have rested, not only in the wisdom of his choice, but also in the precious object of it? He chose likewise the body in which he was to be incarnate, the pure flesh and the precious blood, which were to be assumed by a divine person and then remain forever in worshipful union with him, were worthy objects of his eternal choice. He chose such a temperament of body as should be able to endure the floods of glory he would pour into it. He chose one whose extreme sensitiveness might almost aid rather than impede the delicate operations of his magnificent soul." He chose one whose beautiful texture caused it to be hereafter such an instrument of suffering as has never existed elsewhere amid all the immense capabilities of created life. His future human lineaments were of his own designing. It was a joy to him from all eternity to read the loveliness of their varying expression. His bright eye was a new eloquence which spoke to him even in that profound divine life of eternity." The accents of his voice were even then a perpetual, soundless music in his ear. His likeness to his mother was one of his eternal joys. Thus did the heavenly artist portray from all eternity, upon the darkness of the uncreated waste, that beauty of form and feature which was to ravish angels and men with an exceeding and unchanging love. Was he not himself delighted in his work? He chose his mother also, When we reflect upon the joy, which it is to ourselves to think of Mary, to brood upon her supernatural loveliness, and to study the greatness of her gifts, and the surpassing purity of her virtues, we shall get such faint ideas as lie within our compass of the unspeakable gladness which it must have been to the word to have chosen Mary, and to have created her through that very choice. He must choose a mother, who shall be worthy of being the mother of God, a mother suitable to that tremendous mystery of the hypostatic union, a mother fitted to minister that marvellous body out of her own heart's blood, and to be herself for months the tabernacle of that most heavenly soul. All God's works are in proportion. When he appoints to an office, his appointment is marked by extreme fitness. He elevates nature to the level of his own purposes. He enables it to compass the most supernatural destinies by fulfilling it with the most incredible graces. There was no accident about his choice of Mary. She was not merely the holiest of living women on earth at the time when he resolved to come. She was not a mere tool, an instrument for the passing necessity of the hour, to be used and flung aside and lie indistinguishable in the crowd when her use was gone. This was not God's way. He does not deal thus with the least of his elect. His whole revelation of himself renders such a supposition as impossible as it would be profane. There is nothing accidental or of mere ornament in the works of the Most High. His operations have no excrescences, no extrinsic appendages. God does not use his creatures. They enter into his purpose and are an integral part of them, and every part of a divine work is one of that work's perfections. This is a characteristic of divine working, that everything about it is a special perfection. Mary thus lies high up in the very fountainhead of creation, She was the choice of God Himself, and He chose her to be His mother. She was the gate by which the Creator entered into His own creation. She ministered to Him in a way and for an end unlike those of any other creature whatsoever. What then must have been her beauty, what her holiness, what her privileges, what her exaltation? To depreciate them is to depreciate the wisdom and the goodness of God. When we have said that Mary was the Word's eternal choice... We have said that which already involves all the doctrine of the church about her, and all the homage of Christians to her. When we consider the word's desire to assume a created nature, when we ponder his choice of a human nature, when we reflect on his further choice of his soul and body, and add to all these considerations the remembrance of his immense love, we can see how his goodness would exult in the choice of his mother, whom to love exceedingly was to become one of his chiefest graces, one of the greatest of all his human perfections. All possible creatures were before him, out of which to choose the creature that was to come nearest him, the creature that was to love him, and to have a natural right to love him best of all, and the creature whom duty as well as preference was to bind him to love with the intensest love. Then, out of all, he chose Mary. What more can be said, she fulfilled his idea, or rather, She did not so much suit his idea, but she was herself his idea, and his idea of her was the cause of her creation. The whole theology of Mary lies in this eternal and efficacious choice of her in the bosom of the Father. The word's next choice was of the place where he and his mother were to dwell, that part of the material creation which was to be the scene of his assumption of a created nature, and of a nature itself partially material. It does not seem as if our ignorance could obtain so much as a glimpse of any of the reasons which lay embedded in his choice of earth. The advancement of science only dishonours old guesses without apparently leading the way to new ones. The more unimportant and uncentral we learn ourselves to be physically in the huge creation round us, and the more lost we are in the fabulous probabilities of sidereal space, the less can we discern what it was which guided the creator's predilection this way. We know not why he chose for man's abode our solar system rather than any other solar system, or why he chose a satellite instead of a central body, a planet rather than a sun, or why the planets of this system he chose the third one, which is neither eminent in size or in position. There seems no physical propriety, no material symmetry in his choice. The reasons therefore must be of a sublimer kind and lie deep in the wisdom of the word unfathomable to us. God deals with his creatures in a very individual way. He tells us what concerns ourselves as far as it concerns us and when it becomes practical to us. He is at no pains to explain himself or to reveal systems. He reveals to us according to our real wants. He is a teacher of law rather than of science. He is a father whom we must trust rather than a potentate with whom we must keep up a diplomatic understanding. His reasons for choosing earth as the theatre of the Incarnation lie at one side of our road to heaven and off the road and therefore are not told us. There was doubtless deep and blissful wisdom in the choice. We may lawfully love the particular world which is our home, seeing that he loved it so himself, and crowned it with this eternal choice. Material proprieties are not the measures of divine decisions, and that is a thought which holds many thoughts in these days of ours. End of section 2